Good morning. Let's pray together. Father, we have the the unspeakable privilege to continue to worship you through this time when we're in this text, when we're in this book, this book that teaches us about life and blessing and also about curse. Father, we have the unspeakable privilege that if we choose wisely, that if we respond well to the promises of the scriptures, we can say, Alleluia, we've been redeemed. And so it's my prayer today, Father, as we come before this text, that you would help us to see it in the way that you would want us to see it. Help us to receive it, Father, as you would desire for us to do so. And would you help all of us to come away changed because we've looked into the truths of God himself. And Lord, may it be that in the context of this time together that I would decrease and you would increase. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. This morning I want to begin by asking you to think about the idea of a hinge moment. I'll explain what I mean by a hinge moment. Sometimes we call these cardinal moments. And when we use the word cardinal, a lot of things can come to your mind. You might think of a red bird. You might think of a religious guy with a big hat. Uh, But what I want you to think about is how it's been classically understood, that word in the history of ideas. The word cardinal has the idea of vitally important, or like I mentioned in the beginning, a hinge moment. So if you think of a door and how a door rests usually on three hinges, the whole door will open and close based upon those things. So the word cardinal has the idea of a hinge moment, or an extremely important one. In our culture, we use the idea of a fork in the road to oftentimes communicate the same idea. So this morning I want you to think about the idea of a hinge moment. These happen to us more frequently than we probably realize. Some of them are more profound than others. Some of them are easier to recognize than others. Some you actually don't recognize until years pass and then you can look back upon them. Some of the implications of these hinge moments can be massive. Some of them actually can be kind of small. But we face them probably more often than we realize it. And this morning, as we come to the text that we're in today, we're going to be talking about these hinge moments. Let me share with you one of the experiences that I had in regard to a hinge moment in my own life when I was a young teen. This is a a story you, you probably don't hear these probably frequently enough in church, but these are real life issues that happen to all of us. I was a, uh, a young teen at the time. Many of you might know that I grew up in a home where there were seven children. I was the youngest of seven. In my home, um, both my father and mother were alcoholics. Uh, so it was frequent in my home experience where my, uh, my dad was, in particular, the, the more, uh, if you will, violent drunk of the two. But both of my parents used that particular chemical, alcohol, as their substance that they abused. And as the youngest of seven children, and knowing my age, then you would probably recognize that my oldest two siblings also grew up in the hippie generation. So with my uh, oldest two siblings, while a lot of that is kind of romanticized now at the time, that meant pretty much heavy drug use. My oldest two siblings were uh, hooked on drugs. And so I grew up in a home in which substance abuse was rampant, and I saw the effects of it in my own family. I'd seen the destructive forces firsthand, and and so at a pretty young age, I had decided I didn't really want anything to do with it. 
But there was a particular night in the summer of 1976, and I know for some of you are thinking, yeah, that's right, before the dinosaurs, I understand all that. (laughs) But in in the summer of 1976, it was a hot August Friday night, and I was hanging out with three of my closest friends. Now, you've got to understand that these three guys and I, we did everything together. We went to the swimming pool together. We played all our sports together. We sleep over at each other's house. We were best friends, and we did everything together. And this one particular Friday night in that summer, we decided to go to a, a party that one of our older brother's friends was holding in the neighborhood. Now, another thing you need to understand that when I grew up and I was in high school, the drinking age was 18. So high school parties, it was, it was just common to have a lot of beer there. It's, it's not that it's not common with high school parties now. It's just more legal then uh, <laughs> for that to be the case. And we showed up at this party, young teens for a high school party, and we're trying to look cool, trying to blend in. It's really difficult to do, by the way, if you're in the younger years there. Somewhere in the middle of that time when we were together, one of the guys got a hold of some pot, some marijuana, and he brought it back to the group in the form of a joint, and my three buddies, my three amigos, started puffing on the joint, smoking weed, passing it around. And I remember this so extremely clearly because it, they all turned to me and offered me the pot. And I, I remember that moment, the, the pressure that built up. The, see, these are my closest friends. And I, they, they're saying things like, dude, it's cool. You'll be all right. Try some. No one will know. You'll be fine. It's cool. Come on, dude. And I I remember the pressure of that moment building up because I knew in my own experience, I I didn't really have any interest in it. I had seen what these things do. But I had an enormous desire to fit in, an overwhelming desire to look like I was cool. The pressure built in that moment there it went very quick from their point of view, I'm sure, from mine. It was like an eternity. And I remember at that moment, in the pressure of the moment, we were outside leaning against a fence, and I put my hands on the fence, and I put my head down like this, and I didn't know what to say. I wanted to get out of the situation. I didn't know how to do it. I didn't want to give in. I knew I probably would. I didn't have any sense of what to do at that point. And somehow, the Lord was extremely good to me at this point because I had been a Christian for about one year, And for whatever reason, as I put my hands on the fence and leaned over like this, one of my buddies thought I was getting sick. (laughs) And he said to the other two guys, hey, guys, let's just, let's leave him alone. Looks like he's not feeling good. (laughs) And little did I know that that experience became a massive hinge moment in my life. Because what happened at that moment, while I didn't at that moment have the courage to speak my mind... That moment solidified for me for the rest of my life that I would from then on. That I could be a different person. I didn't have to walk down that road. And so now we are all these years later, 34 years later, and I'm able to say that at that moment, at that party, while I was offered that joint, that became the moment in which the decision was made in my life that I would never do drugs. It was a hinge moment. 
Now, as I, as I speak that one, you probably are thinking of some that you've had in your life, some for better or for worse. In my case, I've made a lot of really stupid, very sinful decisions since that time. But in that particular moment, that was a hinge moment in which I've, my life went in a different direction because of a choice made when I was a young man. Now, what we're going to talk about today are hinge moments. And the scriptures are full of them. They're replete with moments like this in which a decision's made that, that changes a future direction because of, of what was decided upon in those moments. And I want to share with you three of those as background before we actually get to the text that we're in today. So the first one I want to look at together is from the book of Genesis in chapter 2. So if you'll turn with me there, Genesis chapter 2, verses 15 through 18. From the very beginning of time, here you have a context in which Adam and Eve are in the Garden of Eden. God has just actually finished creating Adam in verse 7 of the text that we're in. And by the time we get to verse 15 then, he takes Adam and he places him in the Garden of Eden. And Genesis 2.15 tells us how the story begins to unfold here. The Lord God took the man and he puts him in the Garden of Eden to cultivate it and to keep it. And then the Lord God commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the Garden of Eden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat for it, for in the day that you eat from it you will surely die. And then the Lord God said, It's not good for the man to be alone, so I will make a helper suitable for him. What I want you to see here in the context of this particular passage is from the very beginning of time, from the very beginning of human experience, Humans have been in a place where they've faced hinge moments, cardinal moments, fork-in-the-road moments. And here, note the contrast of what is laid out before Adam and Eve. On the one hand, they have the Garden of Eden in its full abundance. If you'll notice in the text, the Lord tells them that he, he wants them to take care of it and to worship him and obey him in this context. And in verse 15, he says, from any, or excuse me, 16, from any tree in the garden you may eat, any tree. You can be free. Enjoy it. In this place of abundance that God sets them, there's also no sin. And because there's no sin, then there is no shortage. There's no disease. There's no sickness. And God, in addition to that abundance, he gives Adam a spouse, perfectly ordered, so that together they could enjoy this abundance. And so because there's no sin, there's also no argument. There's joy in the context there. But far more than that, and something that we oftentimes overlook when we look at the text of Genesis and the creation story, is that there's something else that's there that brings the fullness to the whole picture. And that is, it's communicated to us in chapter 3, unfortunately after Adam and Eve sinned, but the idea that Adam and Eve actually had the unimaginable privilege of being able to walk with God in the garden, in the cool of the day. See, in addition to all the blessings of the garden and all the blessings of a spouse that's perfectly mated and all the idea of no sin and no disease and no struggle, the real high point was they walked with God in his presence, in this garden, in the cool of the day. Could you imagine what that would be like to just, hey, sun's kind of going down. I guess the Lord's coming soon. Let's go for a walk today. Let's check out this part of the garden. I wonder if he's ever tasted this fruit. I mean, I know he made it, but... 
God himself was the fullness of the blessing. And you see here at this, in this passage of Scripture, in verse 17, But from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat for it, for in the day that you eat it you will surely die. A hinge moment, a decision. Adam and Eve were placed in a context in which they had to believe either in the promises of God and experience the fullness of God's blessings forever or choose to go their own way, experience cursing and death. From the very beginning, this is the way it's been for the human being. Unfortunately, what we learn from this story as it goes on through chapter 3 and chapter 4 is that Adam and Eve unfortunately made the wrong choice. They chose to go their own independent way. They chose to eat of the tree that they were asked not to. And because of that, from, all, from that moment, all of human history has been hinged in a different direction. And we experience tragedies and sorrows and guilts. Indeed, what's, what's so stunning about this, in two chapters, from Genesis 2 to chapter 4, when you see chapter 4 come around, the consequences of Adam and Eve's decision results in his children, Cain and Abel, being in a horrendous situation where Cain actually kills Abel. And so what was supposed to be a place of abundance and wonder and joy is exchanged for bloody soil, blood-stained hands, guilty consciences, shame, sorrow. And despair. This is the choice of Adam and Eve. Let me share with you a second example of a choice. This is actually the one we talked about last week, and I'll, I'll put it up for you on the screen from the passage that we talked about last week. But we looked at Abraham, and Abraham also came to a hinge moment in his life. In our discussion last week, we saw how he had an encounter with God where he could either believe in God and his promises or go his own way. And what we learned, and what this passage of Scripture tells us, is that Abraham actually did believe God and his promises. And what, was happened, to, what happened to him because of that, it was, it was credited to him as righteousness. In other words, it restored his relationship with God. And so rather than trusting in himself, he trusted in the promises of God. But Abraham had that decision he had to make. Would he trust God and God's promises, or would he trust in himself? Thankfully, he trusted in God and his promises. A third example of this where we run into the scriptures, let me put it back up on the board. This is the first thing that you saw when you came in, when I uh, started this morning. This is from Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 19. And here you see that Abraham's children actually did grow up. They become a great nation. They become the nation of Israel. They become enslaved to Egypt. God rescues them from the Egyptian captivity, and he's bringing them towards the promised land. So when we get to Deuteronomy chapter 30 and verse 19, it's near the ending of Moses' life, and they're nearing the promised land. And Moses calls them to account. And to the nation of Israel, he says these words. I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you a hinge moment. Life and death. Blessing or curse. So choose life. Choose life in order that you may live and that your descendants may live. And by loving your God and obeying his voice and by holding fast to him, you would be blessed. Life would come as you receive the promises of God and place your faith in God and his promises. 
Well, that brings us to our our text today because that's the proper background for us to understand what Paul does with us in Galatians chapter 3, verses 10 through 14. Over the past several months, we've been studying this New Testament book of the book of Galatians. And now in chapter 3, we come to these particular verses where Paul's going to place before us the exact same hinge moment that was before Abraham, that was before Adam and Eve, that was before the nation of Israel It's now before the Galatians and before you and I today. So if you have your text with you, let's look at Galatians chapter 3. And what I'm going to do with us is actually I'm not going to start at verse 10. We need to start at verse 8 in order to get the fullness of what this passage is talking about. So two weeks ago when I was, uh, my first sermon that I was doing here on this this particular book, I, I laid out the idea that I would love for you to resurface right now. And that is whenever you do basic Bible study, when you read the text of Scripture for the first time, just like any other book, if an idea is repeated several times, then that's good to pay attention to. And oftentimes that will raise up out of the passage of Scripture the main idea. So as I read this text of Scripture, look for repeated words or ideas. And that will help us to see exactly what Paul's doing. Starting at verse 8 in chapter 3 of Galatians. The Scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, All the nations shall be blessed in you. So then those who are of faith are blessed with Abraham the believer. For as many who are under the works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not abide all the things written in the book of the law to perform them. Now that no, or now that no one is justified by the law before God is evident, for... The righteous shall live by faith. However, the law is not of faith. On the contrary, he who practices them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everything, everyone who hangs on a tree. In order that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we would receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Hopefully that's pretty self-evident to you as you hear those words read to you. The idea of blessing occurs three times, once in verse 8, once in verse 9, and once in verse 14. And the word curse or cursed appears five times. It happens twice in verse 10 and three times in verse 13. And so that helps us to understand that Paul's really trying to get across a point to us here. What he's doing is he's setting before us the exact same kind of context that has been what human history has been full of. Now here, particularly for those of you who may be guests today, just to kind of give you a little bit of context for this particular book, Paul is talking to a group of people who have at least in word, and church, this is why it's so important that we pay riveted attention here today. Paul is talking to a group of people who have at least in word have already decided to place their faith in Christ for the forgiveness of their own sins. But they've become confused Because a group of folks called Judaizers have come and said, faith in Christ is not enough. You need to add something to that. You need to clean yourself up with your behaviors because faith in God is not enough. And that is what's spurring Paul to write this letter. And as we come to this particular case today, he's saying to us, to the Galatians, just like the Garden of Eden, just like Abraham, just like Israel, Countless times in the life and ministry of Christ when he called them to hinge moments. Now, Galatians, and now, North Wake, you are at a hinge moment. Will you trust in your own way, or will you put faith in God? Will you trust in works, or will you trust in faith in the work of Christ on your behalf? 
So to put it in a different version of that, let's take a look at it this way. There's two alternative approaches, if you will, to being rightly related to God that come out of this text of Scripture. The first option, option one, is where Paul says, okay, if you want to, you can try to live by the works of the law, and then we'll discover what that's like. Or option two, let's talk about living by faith in God and his promises. So we're going to explore those for a few minutes. Let's take a look back at the text, and let's first start with option one. The idea of trying to have your life in proper order with God, to be rightly related with God based on works of the law, is where he begins with in verse 10. And in verse 10, he tells us, For as many who are under the works of the law are under a curse. He pulls no punches right from the beginning. If you want to believe that by somehow being a kind of good person or some kind of a spiritual person, that that's going to make you in right relationship with God, Paul tells you with no Uh, ifs, ands, or buts, that you are under a curse. Why? Because if you choose this route, what he's telling us in the passage here is that if you choose this route, here's the the way you have to go. You have to obey 100% of all of the laws written by God for you 100% of the time. Okay, God doesn't grade on a curve. Paul's telling us here that this route is one that says that you have to obey everything. So if you look down here in verse 10, you'll see, Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to perform them. In other words, it doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter when you've lived. It doesn't matter where you've lived. If you want to go to heaven, if you want to be rightly related with God, if you want to have your life something that's pleasing to God, and you want to do that through obeying the law, then from the moment you were born to the moment you die, the only option you have is to do 100% compliance with the laws of God. Any failure at any time will make you cursed before God. Now, please look at verse 11. Paul then goes on and says, now it's evident that nobody can do this. No one is what the particular passage of Scripture says. It's evident that nobody can do this. In fact, what he's implying is that in order to do this, you would have to be God himself. The only person who could do this would have to have the abilities of God himself. And that's exactly what he's implying here. Only Jesus was the one who could fill this this role. That's why in verse 12 he says, that's why the law is not of faith. Rather, the person who's attempting to live rightly related to God based on the grounding of their own moral religious behavior or their own goodness at some level, they're not practicing a form of faith. They're practicing self-righteousness. And then he goes on and he says in verse 12, he who practices them shall live by them. Here's what he means by that little phrase there. The idea is this. Something similar to what my high school basketball coach used to say to us. He used to say, team, if you live by the 20-footer, you'll die by the 20-footer. And what he meant by that, basically, is the only offensive game that you have is to stand outside of the three-point line and chuck up balls. Well, if you're making them, you'll, you'll win. But as soon as you start missing those, you'll lose. Now, in our culture, a similar phrase is live by the sword, Die by the sword. What Paul's saying here is that, look, if you think you can live by the law and you keep all of the law, then you'll live. You break one, you're under a curse. 
I don't like option one all that much. I don't know about you all. Let's take a look at option two. Option two explored. Verse 11, Paul revives his discussion about Abraham from which we covered last week. In verse 11, Paul reiterates the main theme of the entire book, that righteousness comes by the man or the woman who has faith in God. And so what you'll see in the passage of Scripture then is that in verse 13, the passage will tell us that we've been redeemed from the curse of the law. See, the reliance on the law is not of faith. Christ has provided a way to take our place and pay our penalty for us. And so when the Scripture tells us that we've been redeemed from the curse of the law, it actually has a very rich meaning to it. Now, this word redeemed comes from ancient discussions of warfare in history. Biblical scholar Leon Morris explains it this way. Redemption and uh, the idea of being redeemed points to the payment price that sets sinners free, and it comes from warfare language. Listen to this. He says, After a battle, the victors would commonly capture some of the losers or the vanquished. The men of rank in particular would be held for a ransom. And so when the people of the homeland had raised the necessary sum of money, they would pay it to the victors so that the captives could go free. Now that procedure was called redemption. And the money paid was described as the ransom. Now, in our context of the passage we're talking about here, what Paul's teaching us is that if you want to live by the law, you've actually become a slave or a captive of the law. You're unable to keep it, and because of that, we're under the wrath of God. By dying on the cross for our sins, when Jesus Christ hung on a tree, as the passage says there, he then instead becomes a curse for us. And the wrath that was due to me is then placed upon Christ. He becomes a curse, but he pays it all. Now, church, it's really important for us to stop for a minute and not miss a really important point here, especially as we prepare to come to the Lord's table today and think through what this means for our own lives. Sin is serious. Don't miss this point. John Stott says it this way. Let me put the slide up for you so you can see it and read it along with me. John Stott, biblical scholar, says this, God is not some sentimental old father Christmas, but he's the righteous judge of men and women. Disobedience brings us under the curse of God and expresses to us the awful penalties of his judgment. To curse doesn't mean simply to denounce, but to reject. See, the danger for us is twofold depending probably on your personality and the proclivities of your own soul. Some of you are probably very much like me, that you have a tendency, when you hear a message about why Jesus died on the cross, you might have a tendency to underestimate the claims God has on all areas of your life. So for you, you might think, oh, God will wink at this, or he doesn't really care so much about this one. And thus what will happen is that you tend to give yourself license or freedom that God's not given you. And what we tend to call this in church language is cheap grace. On the other hand, there may be some of you out there who, ironically enough, are also like me in a different way. And that is, you may have the tendency or the disposition to be kind of a good person. I mean, heavens to Betsy, I'm, I'm an ethics teacher. You know, I, I should do good. I even set my speed control at 55 on the way to church this morning. I'm a pretty good guy. And some of you have lived life where you're kind of like that. You've not gotten into a lot of trouble. 
But here's the danger for you. You may be, like me, someone who whispers in the depths of your soul phrases like this. I can't believe they did that. I would never do that. I can't believe he or she could say such a thing or think such a thing or do such a thing. What kind of person does that kind of stuff? See, the tendency of of that is to say, God views my sin less than he views somebody else's worse sin. But what this scripture tells us is that it doesn't matter whether in your perspective your sin was small and someone else's is huge, both of them required an infinite cost paid for them. The God of the universe had to die to pay for that sin. So in God's eyes, it's equal. It's hideous. And I don't know about you, but I have the streams of both of those sewers running down my soul. This is why when Jesus died on the cross, the words were uttered by him, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because your little sin or your big sin were both worthy of an eternal punishment that Jesus took for us. But the great news was those were not the only words he said on the cross. He also said, It's finished. Last week we talked about the billboard that God puts in the sky for us in the form of the crucifixion. It is finished. Now the reason why it is finished is in order that, or for the purpose of, that you and I could have faith in Christ Jesus. Christ Jesus alone. He's the only one who's paid our penalty. And so by placing our faith in Christ Jesus, we can choose at a hinge moment of our life not to reject, but to say, I want to have my faith in Christ. And then we walk into blessing, the blessing of Abraham. Let me remind you what the blessing of Abraham was. Last week we took a look at this in Genesis chapter 15. You'll see this here, that the Lord in verses 1 through 6 of Genesis 15, he tells Abraham, I'm going to give you descendants as many as the stars. And if we're not careful, we think that's the real blessing to Abraham. But the real blessing is captured in this verse. Do not fear, Abraham. I am to be a shield to you, and I am your very great reward. See, the goodness and the blessing is just like Abraham or Adam and Eve were supposed to walk with God in the cool of the day. God wants us to have that kind of fullness of blessing to be in his presence. And it's through that we can receive the gifts of God. And so as we come now, we're at a hinge moment. Paul has brought us to a hinge moment in the text of Scripture. The hinge moment is this. Paul wants you to understand that if you live by works, you will come under judgment and you will experience the curse. That's just simply the way it is. Not my words, Paul's. If, however, you choose to live by faith in the promises of God, particularly by faith in Christ Jesus, you not only receive redemption, but you receive justification or a reconciliation of your relationship with God. At that point, then, you can have fullness of life and blessing. So what's it going to be? The consequences could not be clearer, nor could they be greater. If you follow the law, if you follow your own way, you will have judgment, you will have condemnation, you will have wrath, you will be denounced, you will be rejected, you will be forsaken, you will be cursed. If, on the other hand, you have faith, then there will be grace, 
There'll be justification. You'll be separated from sin, but even more beautifully, separated to God. You will have the fullness of blessing, the joy of the Lord. When you die and stand before God, he says, well done to you. You can have flourishing. You can have life. You can have blessing. Paul's brought us to a hinge moment. As the scripture says, in the words of Jesus himself, he said, This is eternal life, that they might know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. The person who chooses the life of faith will stand in God's favor under God's smile. So, let me clarify the issue for you by getting you here as we draw closer to taking our time at the Lord's table to think through two crucial questions for us. Two crucial questions to help us understand where we sit in relation to this whole discussion. The first one is this. If you were to die tonight and you were to stand before God and God were to ask you the question, why should I let you into heaven? What would you say to him? And then based on that answer that you just gave, what percentage chance would you have of getting into heaven? How would you handle this? This is the hinge moment of every human life. To help you clarify it a little bit, let me give you a visual. Let's say these two circles, they represent two different kind of lives. The one on the left, if you'll notice, that circle, that life has what looks like an H in it that's actually supposed to represent a chair. And on that chair is the self, or in other words, the throne of your life. You're sitting on this self is on the throne of his own life. And notice that Christ is on the outside of that life. Whereas on the circle on the right, in the throne, you have Christ is on the throne and self is yielded to the things of God. So let's ask the question that I just put before you to these two people. If the person on the left were to die tonight and God were to ask them, why should I let you into heaven? What kind of response would that person give? Well, it would probably sound something like this. Going to church most of my life, pretty good guy. Haven't done what so-and-so's done. Haven't really killed anybody. Tried to keep the Ten Commandments. Based on that kind of answer, what has our text of Scripture taught us is the percentage chance that person will get to heaven? Zero. Zero. Because cursed is everybody who tries to live by the works of the law. Let's look at the guy on the right. That person dies, stands before God. God asks him, why should I let you into heaven? What kind of answer does that person give? It would probably sound like this. God, you shouldn't let me in. I don't deserve to be left in. There's nothing I've ever done in my life that would make you let me in. In fact, I deserve to be cursed. But my faith is in Christ, and he promised Now, based on that, what percentage chance does that person have of getting into heaven? 100%. Paul has left us in a place where we are at a hinge moment. This is an all-or-nothing discussion. There is no half and half. There's no 50, 60, 40%. It is 0% or 100%. And so we come to this place where we are reminded of this particular verse. Paul has brought us to the exact same place that Israel was at, that Adam and Eve were at, that Abraham was at. I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I set before you life and death in order that you might choose blessing or curse. So choose life. There's one more important question related to this slide. How does the person on the left 
become the person on the right. They do it by saying, God, I agree with you. I am a sinner. And I've got nothing. I come as a beggar. But I have faith that Christ did all the work for me. And by placing my faith in him, I'm trusting in you to make me right with you. In the summer of 1976, I made a decision that affected the rest of my life, but it's actually in 1975 that the most important hinge moment came in my entire experience. And that decision came when I went to a service very similar to this one, and I heard for the very first time, even though I had grown up in a religious home and attended Mass every single Sunday, it was the first time it ever was clear to me that it was a choice of having to place my faith in Christ alone for salvation. And some of you might be at that point today. You know, we have a beautiful opportunity to respond today by coming to the Lord's Supper, coming to the Lord's table. Let me explain what I mean by that. See, it was on the night that Christ was betrayed that he had a meal with his closest friends. And while he was having that meal with his closest friends, he was explaining to them what was going to happen to them very shortly. And he took the bread that was before them and he, and he broke the bread. And he said, this bread is my body. It, it is broken for you. And as often as you take it together, do this in remembrance of me. And then Jesus took the cup that was before him And he said, this cup is the cup of my blood. It is a a cup of a new and an everlasting covenant. My blood will be shed for you. Every time you come together, take this in remembrance of me. My friends, the Lord's table is a place where people come who have nothing except the hope of faith in God. The people that can come to the table here are folks that say, if they were to die tonight and stand before God and God were to ask them, why should I let you into heaven? They would answer, you shouldn't. If you just look at my life this week, you know I shouldn't. But because of faith in Christ, somehow you've invited me. And at this table, we get a foretaste of a meal we'll have with the king of the universe forever in heaven. So this is a place where broken people come, where sinners come, for folks that don't deserve it but have their faith in Christ. So if today you've not yet placed your faith in Christ, then what we would ask you to do during this time is to sit quietly and contemplate the hinge moment that the Lord has placed before you. For the rest of us, if this is a decision that you've made to place your faith in Christ, then remember you're coming as someone who has nothing. But in having nothing through faith, you have everything. Father, we come today with great hope and joy because of the work of Christ having died on the cross for us. So now as we come before the table, Father, we come as people with great hope only in Christ. And so as we take the bread and we drink of the juice, we do this in remembrance of your great sacrifice for us. Thank you.